this whole idea of the end times and the apocalypse or the apocalyptic notions that go with it is actually an overreach in terms of interpretation and that maybe uh, the end times never really happened and aren't really going to happen and don't really exist. And and I was um, thinking about it in the context of that statement that often gets used by the Apostle Paul about the time being short and then, you know, if you're married, you should live like you're not married. And if you, you know, if you've got stuff from, from uh, you're buying stuff, you should act like, you know, you're not going to keep it. And and then there's the, the, the closing statement is something like, you, you know, because the world in its present form is passing away. My, my take on that is that the time is short doesn't mean time is over. It means there's only a, a certain amount of time to actually think and act and build a different kind of reality. And that you have to respond to that because the world as we know it is passing away. And not like passing away in kind of, you know, we're going to be invaded by aliens or, you know, lightning bolts are going to fall from the sky or stuff like that. But but actually the systems that, that we've been shaped by and have relied upon in our various societies are already imploding and you kind of see it. It's almost like a, a, a weird return to kind of feudalism, you know, with all the wealth being concentrated in a small group of people and everybody else, you know, the middle class is disappearing around around the world and new levels of uh, disparity between rich and poor and, uh, and stuff like that. And so I, I, I'm, I'm trying to sort of say, okay, so as we move into this time where it's very evident that the systems that made our world are... are coming to some kind of finality um, that we need, uh, if you like, not only uh, other ways of looking at it, but you also need a counter-apocalyptic view if you're going to come at it from a a kind of techno-theological place. There has to be some kind of way that that you live differently into this. And I'm not saying that we have to create whole new economic or political systems, but as people, and maybe in kind of our nomadic communities, uh, we have to find new ways of, of thinking about life and acting in life. Friedrich Nietzsche wrote, I am afraid we are not rid of God because we still have faith in grammar. For better or worse, those days are now gone. The most imperative, unarticulated presupposition of Western culture has been the free and unified subject, sustained by the theological illusion as the guarantor of its intrinsic value, as articulated by Descartes. It was by making use of the grammatical postulate of the indivisible cogito as the metaphysical underpinning of civilization that the governing rationality of our judicial, financial and political order could emerge. However, 
The implicit representational logic steadfastly administrating the societal machines has mostly been left unthought and our collective unconscious has therefore managed to effectively reduce differences in a sacrificial process of deathly repetitions which has organized and nailed down each human body of the socius as a subject of one. The accelerating level of productiveness has been astonishing all throughout this grammatical paradigm, despite the wars and cults of death it predictably produced, primarily to the satisfaction of the elect, the main beneficiaries of the current set of folds. Everything has seemed possible, and although postmodern theories has challenged the state of affairs, the cogito has prevailed. Until now. When Nietzsche said God is dead, God was dead at a very conscious level to some people. And over the century, less and less people believed in God as this entity up there. But God was hidden in our grammar, in our language, in our cultures. And so the kind of logic that governed the whole system, God was still there. My thesis is that with the internet... God has died also at the grammatical level. Oh, that's very interesting. What you're saying is that there's still something left of that era, of that theology that underpinned European civilization. But it's moving away fast. So if we're going to build something, we probably need to act fast because the time is short. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, um, you know, it's like that comment um, from... Mika Bal, you know, the Dutch culture theorist, she sort of argued in, I can't remember what, it might have even been that that Graham Ward book on the postmodern God, like one of those early ones, maybe that she was in that, I don't know. But she sort of said that that one of the the pillars of Western civilization was the vapor trail of Christianity, that it wasn't, you know, you didn't have to believe (laughs) <laughs> for it to be an intrinsic part of how we've shaped our world and how our world has been been shaped. And um, that's what gave us our common imagination or our consensual illusion, whatever you want to call it, you know, and that gradually, I mean, with like Darwin and, and, and sort of Nietzschean views, that came under threat and under attack. But as you said, those those ideas still lived on in the way we shaped life you know thinking about it from uh even the 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 notion of the fixed self that dominated western civilization for so long and in the last 50 years or so and particularly with the with the dawn of of uh the internet i think those last vestiges are unraveling before they're passing away before our eyes and i think this is part of the the desire for some people to recover what can't be recovered and it's for other people who are trying to move forward but not quite sure how to move forward it's it, it, i think it's all the complications about um sexuality and, and 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 all that kind of stuff you know um i was reading this book the other day um a book of it's kind of sort of aphorisms and quotes by um uh, 
this guy, um, Dominic Petman. He teaches cultural theory at the New School in New York, and he has this book called Humid, All Too Humid. And, you know, it's <laughs> a play. But, it, but in, in, in that um, thing, he just had a, a, a three-line little sentence, and it was mistaken identity politics. And I thought it was just it was brilliant. You know, it just sort of sums up what I think is is like a, another component in this is is that we have this notion, that, you know, that this, you you referenced in, in in what you're writing, this kind of sense of the self and the subjective human, and this whole world built around like identity and identity politics and stuff, and. At this point in the game, I I think we're, we're we're suffering from mistaken identity, you know, a mistaken understanding of the self. The identity politics it's such a broad term and it's used in very derogatory fashion, so it's it's hard to speak about without just off-putting people one way or the other. But I think that the identity politics that are using intersectional analysis and so on. Uh, is basically quite conservative in its understanding about what it means to be human. It's just the inability to fit into the the molds that are out there. And so you want to make your own and you want it to be... So it's very hyper-individualistic. At an emotional place, I can get that. You know, why people want to feel accepted and not be ostracized because of their skin color or their gender identity or whatever. But beneath all that, I think there is a logic to it that is quite conservative and it's not looking to the future. It's rather looking to the past. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree with you. I, I think, I mean, I, I, I welcome the, the desire or, if you like, the demand for people to be accepted for, for who they are um, and to challenge the the status quo of a system that, that's isolated and marginalized people on the basis of skin color or sexual orientation, that, that I, 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 I completely support. But I don't think it solves the problem. It just is trying to expand an old category that I think is passing away. There's an interesting book by uh, a woman called Victoria Brooks. Um, she's an um, English uh, writer, a philosopher, and it's called Fucking Law. And it's about her search for sexual ethics. And it's very uh, provocative um, because she's kind of arguing from, a, um, from being um, a queer person who's also uh, an academic, so trying to break into the world of academics, but also trying to understand um, what sexual ethics looks like in the 21st century, not just for her, but for people um, in, in general. And, and I thought it was um, one of the more forward-looking books that, that I've read on, on, on this issue and actually took the conversation further forward and you know and and if we're going to quote him again you know uh poetry from the future you know that whole argument that that whatever the next revolution if you like is going to be it's not going to come from uh the past which i think is one of the one of the i don't know if i call it a mistake but it's one of the 
problems that occurred in the most recent election with the the Labour Party, which was, um, I, I think, um, this belief that a recovery of a kind of 1970s leftist view of the world would be enough to pull the country over the hump and get us somewhere else. And, and I think what it needed was a, a, a kind of futurist leftist vision, if you like. This mistaken understanding about the times is something, I, we talked about this in our past episode as well, uh, where the left seems to be nostalgic about times when, when the analysis was actually functioning. But there's no creativity because of the very hardened opposition towards whatever right-wing alternative is in your country. And so you look to the right-wing option and you negate it. And so you create this pure heaven. And so there is an emphasis on purity, but it's a static world. It's a world that's not in motion. And so you end up being very static in your imagination, being limited by the contours of the imagination of the more conservatively minded people that you're opposing. And so you're stuck. And I think that is what's needed both for the left, but also for religion, because religion clearly also has this type of negating the world, creating a static heaven, which is an inversion of this world where the rich people will have a hard time and the poor will prosper. So we're in the middle of that, trying to come up with ways of being creative and allow for the continuous creation of unforeseeable novelty to actually transform our whole understanding. I mean, it's, 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 I, you know, I've, I've said for for a long time, and and I think I started to say it before I really knew what I meant by saying it. But I've said for for many years the way forward is forward, <laughs> <laughs> and and um and 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 I would always like um then kind of doubt myself and go well yeah but you know the past is important history is important you know tradition all those things and and it took me a while to sort of reconcile and, and to realize that that um yes that the past is important and those who don't learn from history are destined to repeat its errors and all of those you know aphorisms that, that defined our well but one of the, the the things that I've struggled with for many years um, with religion is is its love of conservatism, that it seems to feel that its chief obligation is to preserve the past, you know, to prioritize the past over the present and, in, in a sense, because of that, the future. Do you know what I mean? Yes, but it's also it's also a version of the past that is suitable for the people making the decisions in the present. Yeah. And so you kind of pick and choose what in history is worth repeating. And what's worth repeating is usually what benefits yourself. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, it's, the, it, it's that romanticizing uh, of certain aspects of the past that you think might... Um, and, and I'm not saying that they. I'm not saying that there aren't things that that you can treasure and learn and understand. I mean, it doesn't matter what field you're in. You know, there's there's a history of ideas that that have um, served that field well, 
and it's good to know them. But I think it's more like I remember when when I was doing my um, when I was doing my doctoral work, um, I I um, I sort of wanted to go uh, and, and talk to people who ne weren't necessarily doing the kind of work I wanted to do, but I liked the questions that they were asking. I, I, I went to uh, Oakland to meet with Matthew Fox, not because I thought what Matthew Fox was doing was what I wanted to do. In fact, in some ways, I'd, I'd already done a lot of that, uh, that kind of cosmic math type stuff. Do, do you know what I mean? That, but, I, but I liked the fact that he was um, asking questions. Similarly, when, when I first encountered um, Graham Ward, you know, the radical, yep. uh, radical orthodoxy never appealed to me because I, I, it just never appealed to me. But I liked the fact that he wanted to ask questions that I thought were pertinent. And, and um, I think I've said before that, that one of the transformative moments in, in my kind of theological life was when somebody gave me uh, a, a, a talk and this guy said that the task was to guard the great questions. And it wasn't so much the answers that were given, but, but the questions that elicited that elicited those answers in, in that particular time. And, and I think um, now is the time to sort of work out what the, the what those questions are again, but not to look backwards for the answers, but to look in, in the now, in the present. I think I think if you if you ask good questions, you are simultaneously creating the answers to your question. Yeah. Bergson says this and that you it might take time to uncover the answers yeah. but if the question is a good one if you don't do categorical mistakes and you confuse the less for the more and he has this whole thing that he goes through in order to define you know what is a good question but if you ask a good question you will simultaneously create the answer to your question which gives the task of formulating questions an extra weight because it needs to be rooted in our intuitive notion of what it means to be alive, to be in motion. You can't ask good questions if you're not in motion. If your head is in the sky and you're not in tune with the world you're living in, your questions aren't going to be relevant. And so radical theology needs to be rooted in, in a community of people. And so that goes into why we're created this network of people in Europe. Yeah, and I think that's the, the impulse that's emerged this second wave of radical theology that's emerging to some degree outside. I mean, I know there are academics that are involved, but increasingly I think the conversation is taking place outside of strictly formal academic uh, environments. But again, you know, I, I, I think it's this issue of asking the right, the right questions of the of, of the times in, in in which we live, and making sure that we're not just asking the same old questions. And again, that was one of the reasons why I like. Uh, it's why I always like to read um, people who comment about religion or theology who come from outside. You know, so uh, Zizek, for instance, I I find. I found was really helpful because he asked really in, interesting questions of religion because he has a, a different kind of interest. He doesn't have a vested interest in its survival necessarily. You know, 
Nick Cave, (laughs) or Leonard Cohen, you know, anybody that that sort of minds the world of religion and theology because they're asking different questions of it. And uh, that can be really helpful, I think, in, in, in making sure that we fine tune our, um, cause it's not just asking questions, making sure that we're asking right and questions of, of both the times in which we live, but also theology's potential to speak into that. As you and maybe some of the listeners know, I read Gilles Deleuze quite religiously. And in his book with Felix Guattari, what is philosophy? What is philosophy? It's the creation of concepts. And so we need to continuously create new concepts because yeah. we're building these models of the world to try to understand the world, but also how to navigate. Yeah. We have them for a certain time, but then at certain times, the end times, perhaps, you know, the apocalyptic times, these structures that we've conceptualized and also built, you know, in architecture and roads and infrastructure and everything suddenly it all doesn't really function the way we want them to anymore. I think the questions is the question we need to pose is what do we want for the world? What kind of world do we want to live in? And that is something that people have a hard time because it's much easier to look at someone else's vision, make America great again. Fuck that. I don't want his version of America. That it's very easy to pick on, you know, someone else's stupid vision, but to come up with your own vision, your alternative, because as we talked about in the last episode about, you know, traveling from Egypt into the desert, leaving the old structures behind, being on or on the road towards something, towards the promised land. But in, in that scenario, there is a Moses standing in front of the people pointing and saying, there's this land and I'm going to take you there. And I don't see a lot of Moses characters in in our time. I see a lot of people complaining in Egypt. There's this really strange um, dynamic that sort of emerged, I think, in the 90s, and understandably so, but it, w- it was kind of quite prevalent in um, a lot of the kind of alternative Christian circles, you know, the mistrust in the idea of a leader and the, the, the need to have a sort of collaborative, collective leadership that um, works stuff out together. And, and uh, of course, I, 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 I think there's extreme value in that and there's, there's a lot of danger in, you know, the, the singular leader, just, you know, the singular Moses figure. I mean, I watched... Um, last week uh this really interesting documentary on uh bbc about jonestown and jim jones and that Mm. whole debacle you know the mass murder in in uh guyana in in uh and and you know so i i understand the um the wariness about leaders but you also need to be able to have uh, ideas and, and perspectives on how to move forward. Yeah, I, I, don't, I don't think that you need to have, you know, the singular leader. What I see is that 
people are complaining in Egypt and they're they want something else but and some of them has moved into the desert and found that this is not a hospitable place let's get back into Egypt and that frustration leads to a desire simply to burn Egypt down yeah. in order to see that hopefully something better will just rise from the ashes. And I think that's naive. It's almost like a dream of pure democracy. Everyone dies and that's fair. <laughs> pure democracy. Everyone dies. Yeah. There's, there's, your, there's your campaign slogan, Justin. <laughs> I, I, I think, you know, one of the reasons we sort of put our heads together and said, well, let's try and start something in Europe was not just so we could have another talk fest, but actually so we can get some things done and get people moving. And, and, and sometimes you just have to, uh, sometimes that sometimes there are times when you have to do stuff. And I actually think that time is, I, I think now is the time. I think this is actually is a time for, uh, action for a long time i thought i i i i was quite content to do a lot of thinking and i and i don't think thinking and acting are oppositional i think you have to think while you're acting as well but um i i do think that now it's time to sort of lay down some uh markers and sketch out some places to move towards and to think about and and, and to uh to do because because the time is short. Yeah, I mean, and 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 the, the, the like I said, the time is short to me means that's the time when when you can actually get something done. Yeah. So um, I'm I'm quite happy to continually ask questions because that's how I've kind of lived my life, and and I think there's I think it's a part of the the theological necessity. You know, it's um, is it Wittgenstein that was asked. What was the point of philosophy if it didn't come up with any answers after all this time? And he sort of basically said, well, you know, if you've got an itch, um, scratching it helps. Uh, that's a very bad interpretation, but uh, it's something about, you know, there's, there's a, a validity to itching, something that continues to itch. And I think that's an important part of the theological enterprise is to keep scratching away at those things that itch and cause concern and, and to make sure that we're asking the the questions that mean something in our time but alongside of that at this point i th i think um as the world is passing away whether it's the political world or the economic world and particularly in this case the theological world it's also time to set up some markers and say hey we don't have to go backwards we can go this way 